Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Just to let people know during this podcast, I have a slight correction. The website that people can go to to find out more about the particular drug mentioned is nurtech.com, N-U-R-T-E-C, nurtech.com. They also wanted to mention how uh, the Nurtech ODT drug works. dissolves in the mouth without needing water. It lasts up to 48 hours. They report very few side effects. And it works usually within an hour for many patients. Two hours was mentioned just out of an abundance of caution. But um, the manufacturer themselves has instructed me to let people know that it appears to be within one hour of use. So I just want to let you know that. And uh, please listen into this podcast with Dr. Sylvia. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. I have Dr. Sylvia Lucas. Uh, she's a clinical professor emeritus of neurology at University of Washington Medical Center. We're going to get into her bio in a second. We're going to talk about migraines and chronic headaches. So this actually may be very interesting to a lot of listeners because I can't even imagine how many people get headaches and chronic headaches and migraines, millions and millions, I'm sure. So Sylvia, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me on the show, Richard. Tell me about your background a little bit, and then I want to ask you why you're interested in, in headaches and migraines. I will tell you about my background. Uh, I am a migrainer, but that's not why I went into this. But um, you're right. A lot of people have migraine. In fact, in this country, it's about 38 to 40 million people. Around the world, it's 1 billion. So it certainly isn't an uncommon thing. My background as far as getting into this is, you know, probably only of interest to me. But (laughs) basically, um, I found when I was going through medicine that Issues that could be called women's issues, that is, occurred in women about three times more than they occurred in men, which is the case for things like migraine or multiple sclerosis or other autoimmune diseases. It just kind of weren't, the the research wasn't there. The dollars for the research wasn't there. The respect for the disease or the illness wasn't there. And I found that uh, back in the 80s, even, some physicians would consider migraine a neurosis. And because we know that stress is one of the most common triggers, a lot of people were told, you know, it's stress from your job or your husband or your kids, you know, just buck up or take it. And now that we have a biological model, everything's completely different. But that's one of the reasons I got into it, because I'm certainly willing to sit down with someone and I have the luxury of taking time to listen to their stories. Oh, interesting. Okay. So what's, uh, has science figured out why migraines occur? I mean, you know, you said stress, but that's kind of general. I want to make a distinction here. It's an interesting point you bring up, the causation versus things that are triggers. So migraine is thought to be a genetic process. In fact, there's about 40 major genes and about, and there's hundreds of minor genes that have been linked to people who have migraine. So we know that there is an inherited process. If one parent has migraine, there's about a 50% chance that a child will, if both, if there's migraine on both sides, maybe 75% chance. 
But we know that something that's so common certainly isn't a punishment. It's not something you're doing to yourself, as I think a lot of patients feel. Um, it doesn't mean your brain doesn't work right. And in fact, I think it's not just that you inherit migraine. You inherit a brain that can support a migraine. And there's also things probably about the people that have migraine that we don't know yet. For example, some of the more famous migraineurs in history are Charles Darwin, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lisa Kudrow, whose father was a great headache doctor as well, Cindy McCain, Whoopi Goldberg, JFK, and then, in fact, Terrell Davis, who was very instrumental in getting the word out about migraines and athletes because he had a terrible migraine during the Super Bowl when he was playing um, with the Denver Broncos and actually ended up after a successful treatment at halftime getting MVP of that game after three touchdowns. And he became a spokesperson, which we desperately needed in the arena. And of course, now I think a lot of us have seen Serena Williams be a spokesperson as well. So the brains that inherit migraine may also have other positive factors to them. They may work faster. Some people will say they're more sensitive, hyperexcitable, that allow other good things to happen, for example. You know, what kind of biometrics or biomedical data has been collected? You know, have they had people in the lab while they're having a migraine or as a migraine is onsetting? And do they look at their, you know, their heart rate, their blood pressure, their ECG? I mean, that's an interesting question. I think one of the reasons that research for migraine was a little bit, um, have, we'll say, slowed down was that because we, we don't have a lab animal that has migraine. You can't shoot a rat out of a cannon and say, you know, does your head hurt? And so we're limited. So we have good models for cardiovascular disease or kidney disease. But again, something that is pain and other things like nausea or light sensitivity it's difficult to do research. So with people, uh, ethically, we basically depend on uh, imaging like MRIs or functional MRIs or scans, things like that. Or as happened with migraine, we kind of work backgrounds, work backwards from how a drug works to find out how the disease works. So for example, we've known for years, since 1945, that something called DHE, dihydroergotamine, very old drug, worked for migraine specifically. It wouldn't work for any other kind of pain, but it was a, an injection and it hated heat, light, and oxygen. It was a difficult drug to take with a lot of side effects. But doing research from that drug led us in the 80s to the discovery of a group of drugs that we called the tryptans. The first one you may have heard of called sumatriptan that was released in the United States in 1993 under the brand name um, Imatrix. And as a neurologist, that was the first time I ever got a phone call saying, my God, this is a miracle. But we saw that Imatrex works in a particular way. It blocked the release of CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide, which was a protein that caused inflammation and dilation of these medium blood vessels in the lining of the brain, the dura, and that was found to be associated with causing not only the pain of migraine, but also migraine is much more complicated than that. You can get difficulty thinking, you can get nausea, you can have light and sound sensitivity, you can get something called sensitization where normally things that your brain would suppress are not suppressed. For example, bending over to tie your shoe, 
you feel a whoosh in your head. One patient told me, oh, you'll think I'm crazy, but it's like I can really feel fluid around my brain sloshing around. And I said, no, you're not crazy. You can. <laughs> or you can feel your heartbeat. You know, a lot of us can f- feel our heartbeat when we put our head down on a pillow just the right way. But people with migraine can feel the throbbing of their heartbeat. It's just the gain has changed. Why can they feel that? First of all, we don't know. But secondly, it seems to be that sensitization is part of the, mi- is part of the migraine. It's, as the migraine builds, it's the part of the brain that we think is the modulator or the generator where the trigeminal nucleus is in the back of the brain, the brainstem uh, becomes more sensitive. So any input in there results in not only a bigger output, meaning pain, but also these other symptoms that I was talking to you about. So for example, probably light sensitivity is the most common thing that migraine folks complain of. I remember I had to give up playing um, badminton in, in college because, you know, in the gym, they have these bright lights. And when I'd go back to hit the birdie, um, I'd stare at the lights and in a minute I'd lose my vision and then the headache would start. So, you know, sometimes these triggers are pretty fast, but they're all individual for each person. So um, to get back to your question, then, how did we find out really the biological basis for migraine? A lot of it was because of the way these drugs worked. So the triptans was the first class of drugs. The second class, which is very recent, are the CGRP drugs. Now, calcitonin gene-related peptide was the drug was the peptide I said was blocked from release when we took a triptan like sumatriptan. But now, um, starting two years ago, we had monoclonal antibodies that were CGRP monoclonal antibodies, meaning that they blocked the CGRP ligand, the, the, the protein itself, or the receptor that it latched on. Now, these are preventatives, not acute therapies. And then last year, we started getting the release of um, CGRP small molecule drugs that block the receptor of CGRP as well. So because you're blocking the receptor of something that is really important in the pain pathway, you can stop the migraine. It won't stop other kinds of pain. It's very specific to the migraine. But for example, the latest drug to be released in the spring, just before I think the pandemic came out, was the Remegipant, a small molecule CGRP antagonist, also known as Nertec. That's the brand name. And it's an orally disintegrating tablet. So the end is ODT. So it's a freeze-dried pill, so to say, but it, you put it on your tongue or under your tongue, and it's like a pop rock, you know, it kind of explodes in about um, a second. And so you can take it without water. But Remegipant is very... And again, it goes right to the workhorse of the migraine. And that's why we call it specific versus something that isn't specific. Like a lot of people go to Bartels or Rite Aid or Costco and they'll buy ibuprofen or naproxen or, you know, some over-the-counter Tylenol drugs. These aren't specific. I mean, they work non-specifically in the brain to try and decrease people's perception of pain. But it's drugs like the triptans or like these new drugs like remegipanth, the CGRP drugs that really stop migraine. So it seems like one of the big problems is sensitivity to light, sound, pain, et cetera. And I guess that's why a lot of people say they just want to go lie down in a dark room and get away from all the stimuli. Does anyone know what causes this upregulation in terms of sensitivity and 
Oh, is there yeah. an order? Is it usually visual first and then other, or is like, like what's no. the onset of a migraine like? It's very different for every person. And um, it, it's interesting, if I can go back to what we were talking about earlier about doing MRIs, scientists actually caught a woman in a functional MRI scanner while she was having a migraine. In fact, this woman was very heroic. She went in to have a scan every day for a whole month and they caught a couple of spontaneous migraines while she was in that scanner. And that is not comfortable. And if you've ever had an MRI, <laughs> having to sit there with your head, your head kind of taped on to a gurney. But um, they found that the MRI probably started hours to maybe even up to a day before. And they can tell that the the hypothalamus and the thalamus were very important arenas for what we think maybe some of the triggers would start the migraine. And then why did it take a day or an hour? I mean, that's something we still don't know, and maybe it's genetically based. But then you'd start making these connections with parts of the brain that we know are involved with modulating or, or beginning the migraine, if you will. So it, it's interesting that at the time that she was starting to have the migraine, they noticed an increase in sensitivity to smells, for example, sensitivity to light. They could, they could put some ammonia under her nose and maybe it would be even worse before the migraine than if on days when she didn't have the migraine, for example. So it may be that these triggers are working on you even you know, before you even think you're going to have a migraine. And in fact, we call this the premonitory uh, time. So people for hours or even a day maybe notice differences in their behavior. You know, light might be bothering them. They might get, you know, sort of a, a dull ache on their head. They might not sleep well. They might notice certain kind of cravings, like they want carbs more and more. So is this a trigger for the headache or does the headache make you just more sensitive to these things or both? And I think it's interesting that headache triggers, even though they are unique for each person, are usually really common between people. So for example, I think that stress, as I said, was probably one of the most common ones. There's also sensory triggers. I hate the time of day that we go from daytime to dusk and people start turning on their car headlights. That bothers me. So I've been pretty sensitive to light. Hunger or a drop in your blood sugar can be a trigger. Poor sleep or broken sleep. Um, alcohol, that can be any alcohol. It can be red wine with sulfites in it. Weather changes, particularly in Seattle. I know a lot of folks that will get their headache about 12 hours before the storm comes. So we're actually walking barometers. Hormonal changes for women are particularly tied into having a migraine. About 60% of women with migraine will notice a headache like two days before their period, up to two days after the start of it. And even certain foods can be triggers as well, or it could be a combination. And I think that particularly in these days where our stress is sometimes just unbelievably high. We're just noticing that people are having more and more headaches, but yet afraid to come into the physician or afraid to get help from it because of the pandemic. You know, some of the, um, the symptoms you talk about sound vaguely familiar, like pregnancy. You know, I remember my wife saying her sense of smell was heightened. You know, of course she had cravings. Yeah. I don't know. Is there any, uh, 
similarity between the two that can be drawn and to figure out why these things happen. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, pregnancy and, and hormonal changes for women really do a number on you if you're a, a migraineur. For example, you know, I mentioned one of the common triggers is the menstrual period for women. And sometimes during early pregnancy, headaches are kind of bad as well. But for most women, I'd say greater than 80%, by the time you make it to the end of your first trimester, into your second and third your estrogen levels are really high and stable. And so you end up actually having fewer migraines. I mean, it doesn't mean they'll go away because once you have that baby, your estrogen levels 200 times normal go crashing down to reality and you know your headaches can start again. But we're lucky that uh, pregnancy itself doesn't, doesn't cause worse headaches. Now, the fact that your sense of smell or other things are uh, more acute can be from other reasons too. I mean, you know, when people have food, your wife may have had food cravings, you know, pickles is <laughs> pickles and ice cream is what that I hear a lot. But I want to take a minute, actually, uh, Richard, if you don't mind, and talk a little bit more about triggers and stress, because the thing about migraine is most people know what their triggers are. If they don't, it's worth keeping a diary or just thinking about it a lot and trying to say on 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 weekends, do I get more headaches than during the week? Do I get more headaches if I have three cups of coffee rather than one? Um, if I don't sleep well, if I, it's anyway, it's worth figuring out your triggers and trying to control them. I think that that's just one way of treating migraine. You find out what your triggers are and you control them. The second one, of course, is when you have a migraine, you take a drug that's called acute therapy. And the third way is if you have lots of headaches, like several times a month or the whole month, you take preventative therapy, something every single day, try to prevent the headache. But migraineurs do the best when they are really boring people. You have to be consistent. You know, get up at the same time, go to bed at the same time, don't skip your meals. You will learn the hard way, but you'll learn that um, you do better like that. And with the pandemic, I think the stress for people and what what is stress i mean you really you really release norepinephrine your fight or flight hormones if you will peptides go up and i think sometimes those are triggers it's very difficult to help people who are in fear who are in isolation who may be working from home, so you're cut off from your social, your friends, or your social input. Um, you might be teaching your children at home and trying to, you know, balance all those things on one hand. Um, I think that's been really tough. And balanced with that, you know, you have the increased stress of the pandemic, but you also have less of a chance to go get help from your provider. A lot of people, again, you're afraid to go out, you're thinking, you know, people have a lot worse problems than I do, so they can't breathe. I've got a headache. But, you know, now with the onset of telemedicine, I'm really grateful that we're trying to get things back to normal in the healthcare system and be there for people. I think the wildfires and the hurricanes, this was a terrible year, and we just noticed a lot of folks, you know, there's that smell sensitivity again. Even in Seattle, where when the wind started coming north, the Northern California uh, smoke came up and we could see it in a nice layer, It the air quality was really bad. So that's something else that can um, be a trigger for headaches. And and the poor people that live in, in Hurricane Valley now, the southeast, you know, the United States, it's 
the barometric pressure there is all over the place. And so, and then I would say every election year is a huge stress, but this one in particular is very chaotic. And if people are trying to control their stress, you have to draw a line and just say, I have to figure out a new way to be consistent and boring, you know, and it might be things like meditation or relaxation, you know, relaxation techniques, or my, I, I started a yoga class and I started a really hard yoga class, hard enough that I can't think of anything else, but trying to stay alive while I'm doing it. So, you know, again, I think just trying to get something going where you can get out of the chaos and try to build a new normal for all the differences in our lives that we're experiencing this year is very important for people with migraine. Medically, with these uh, medications, is there anything new that's on the market that has that seems to be particularly effective? Or, you know, again, in the medication world, what's new yeah. or what becoming? Yeah, I mentioned the triptans were new. That research was done in the 80s, and so they were new in the 90s. And then we had nothing else for 20 years until the CGRP drugs came out. And it's not that we haven't known about CGRP. This protein, as I mentioned, is a very potent vasodilator and one of the workhorses for causing a migraine. And we've known that the levels in your body go up when you have a headache and they go down when your migraine's over. And if you treat it successfully, they, the levels normalize as well. So we know it's an important player, but it was a very difficult structure to clone and once it was done, then research started going on in earnest in the late, about 2006 or so. And um, now the newest drug in that uh, camp is, uh, is Nertec ODT. That is a small molecule CGRC receptor blocker antagonist. So meaning that if it blocks the receptor, then CGRP, when it's released, can't cause the migraine. It can't cause the pain. It lasts in the body for about 11 hours and uh, gets metabolized. So goes away, basically. So there's no long-term effects of it. But this drug in uh, clinical trials that were published um, earlier this year and in earlier trials last year was found to be very effective. In fact, over 50% of people would have pain relief in two hours and uh, also a uh, a significant amount of people would be pain-free, completely pain-free at two hours compared to placebo with this drug. So I think one of the advantages of this drug is not only that it's fast, it also lasts because it has a longer half-life than the triptans did, 11 hours. You can see it still working at 48 hours, 24 hours. And that's important because the average time of a migraine that I saw in my patient population was about 36 hours. So you take a pill, you go to bed, but sometimes you wake up the next day and you still have that headache and the drug's worn off. So it's important that it's got a lo longer half-life in your... Um, the other thing is it works on your uh, other bothersome symptoms like the light sensitivity or the sound sensitivity or nausea. Uh, or vomiting, which uh, unfortunately some people have. So this is the newest. Um, it's also nice because compared to some of the drugs that have been out there in the past, there's very few side effects. It's a highly tolerable drug. And by that, I mean that if you compared it to placebo, 
only 1.6% of people in the largest clinical trial had a little nausea. That was its only side effect. So I think that um, that's saying a lot. A lot of people don't want to take these drugs because the drugs themselves might cause side effects. And then you end up going to bed. Strange question. Um, uh-huh. Is there any benefit when you have a migraine? I, it doesn't sound like it's possible, but is there anything that's been discovered? Like do people's memories improve or just everything worsens? Is there any beneficial, anything that happens when people have migraines? When you're actively having a migraine, is oh, there no. anything, anything good about the experience at all? No, I mean, it's interesting to ask because I've told you a list of all these famous people that have migraines. And, you know, if, if we had time, I would tell you about how we know brains work faster and, and uh, why you always want to hire a secretary. That's probably not a politically correct word anymore, but let's say administrative assistant who has migraine because she or he will only let the phone ring three times. <laughs> you know, I mean, people pay attention to things like sounds or smells. They're just hypersensitive, as you alluded to earlier. But I think that if you're thinking about during the migraine itself, you know, some people have gone up and given these folks the same kind of test they give Air Force pilots when they're at high altitude, and migraine folks don't do well. So it does affect the brain, and the World Health Organization has put it in the top 10 disabling conditions for the, as long as I can remember WHO listing disabling conditions. I would say the chances of dying from a migraine are pretty slim to none, although you know, there's been a rare relationships where people can have a stroke while they're having a migraine, but this is so rare. It's uh, maybe people will see one in their whole lifetime. And I have never seen that in 30 years of, of treating people with migraine. But I think the reason to control it, the reason to treat it is not just to get rid of the pain, but to have your day back. I will say that some of the success stories are specific cases in my patients. I had a patient of mine who had a wedding date set. As soon as she set that wedding date, you know, and I, everything that goes along with the wedding, you know, you, you pick the place, you pick the cake, you pick the flowers, you pick the dresses, you pick the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. It's such a big deal that it's very stressful. And she was so worried that a migraine would just destroy her wedding day. And we spent a lot of time doing what I call making a toolkit for it. So a toolkit is really a plan. Um, so if you have a migraine and you're someone who can tell when it starts, the earlier you take something to treat it, like let's say you take Nurtec, as soon as you knew you were going to have a headache, you take it because it works better the earlier you take it. In her case, we needed a backup. What if my drug doesn't work? So in her case, we used an injectable. There was an injectable drug that uh, that was highly effective. It worked in minutes. So again, and then the third thing is, if this doesn't work, here's my home number. <laughs> you know, just call me. <laughs> I'll come down and we'll, we'll make sure you have a lovely wedding. And she did have a lovely wedding. She didn't have to call me. So I think having a toolkit, a plan, if my headache is low grade, I might get by with a couple of ibuprofen. If my headache is maybe and I use a 1 to 10 scale where 10 is the worst, 1 is nothing. And I tell people, by the time you roll back past a 3 to a 4, you got to start thinking about taking something. But if your 3 to a 4 always gets to a 10, if you don't take anything, you take what works. You take your migraine drug and you take it early. 
you know, whether it's a triptan or whether it's a, a CGRP drug or whether it is um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that work well for some people, you take that. You don't wait and see if you need it because by that time, there's so much water under the bridge. The brain is like dialed on high, you know, as far as it's going. And it's more difficult to treat migraines the more they're dialed up, so to speak. There's just more activity in the part of the brain that drives the migraine. So it's a little bit harder to do. You know, but there's been carpenters, artists, people who are very productive, who once we found the drugs for them, they were able to be productive. They were able to hold their jobs down. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, you're giving people their life back once you find the right drug that will control that pain. Because I think one of the more difficult things, um, there are very, there's people that are very, they're very resilient. In my internship, I'd have a migraine. I knew there was no one to take my place. I just suffered through it and hope I didn't make mistakes as I'm sitting there trying to not vomit when I'm talking to people. But um, so resiliency is important. And by that, I mean, you work with your physician or your provider and you get a plan and you try to control your disease any way you can. If you want to call migraine a disease, I particularly to tend to call it a condition, but, but you don't let it control you. It's, 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 you're more resilient if you try to have all the tools at your disposal to, to get to this and you're not a victim because once you think that, oh, my life's over because I've got migraine and I've got 15 a month and I can't do anything, then you aren't productive. And uh, right. there's still preventatives that can, let you have your life back and that's what's so nice about modern okay. times so to speak well sylvia we're, we're at the end where where's the best way people can find out more about migraines uh, and learn from you oh my um are we really at the end darn it okay <laughs> well you know you, you've said a lot of great stuff i mean but yeah oh yeah i just wanted to say one more thing um, there's a, there's untapped people that may not be diagnosed with migraine, but my, my research now is in traumatic brain injury and concussion. And I want to say that, um, there's about 28 million people a year that have concussion, most of them mild. Those are only people that report that, but there's so many, uh, children, high school, junior high school, college athletes, uh, adults that go out on weekends and play and might get um, their bell rung. That's one that I still hear. But, um, but headache is the most common symptom after getting a concussion as well. So I highly recommend that um, if that happens and the headache doesn't go away, to also get a treatment because sometimes these drugs will work, even though they're not approved for headache-related con to concussion. Um, yeah. That's another thing that can, that can help. All right. Well, again, how do people find you specifically? Where can they go? Um, I want to call your attention to a couple places that we'll talk about everything that I've talked about and anything you'd want to know about migraine. The first one is the National Headache Foundation, uh, nhf.org. The second one is the American Headache Society, americanheadachesociety.org. There is a, a, a patient profile patient profiles of different headaches and there's a physician or provider 
uh, portal, there's also a patient portal. So if you're suffering from migraines and you can find out all about the medications and how to get them. Also, each drug has its own um, has its own website as well. So for example, if you wanted to find out more about the newest drug, Nertec ODT, then you would look up, you know, www.nertecodt.com. And, um, and that will tell you about the drug. And it'll also tell you as much as you want to know or more than you want to know by linking to the original um, clinical trials. So those are some places to get information. The other thing is Wikipedia, which I think is a really good <laughs> is, is a re- is a really good place to find out about different headaches as well. Yeah, it's a good starting point. Yeah, well, it very is. Good. Well, well, Sylvia, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing all your knowledge, and I really appreciate it. Oh, Richard, thank you so much, and thanks for sharing about your wife's pregnancy too. Oh, no problem. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.